So I had a chance to preach a, a message about a month and a half ago up to the youth students. And um, my two daughters are in that youth group. It's very strange. They're, my, they're, my, they're the worst hecklers out there, trust me. They, they look at me like, you know, because uh, they hear lectures from their dad every day. And so they weren't looking forward to it. So I thought I was going to play a joke on them. I was going to bring out all these pictures that I have in my, in my storage, uh, very embarrassing pictures. And I realized that's a little too cruel to embarrass teenagers in front of other teenagers. So I decided I'll embarrass myself and show them what I looked like when I was a teenager. Yes. That's 1987. Um, yes, and those glasses, they weren't gag glasses. Those are real glasses. I don't know why I got, my mom got me these huge glasses, right? Um, okay, I've got to move on from there. But uh, that reminds me, actually, of where I was. It was a time of incredible transition. So as a high schooler, um, leaving my parents' house for the first time, I was such a mama's boy, right? Going to a different city and having to make choices on my own without the hawk you know, you know, hawkish presence of my parents. Um, in a lot of ways, I was very excited. In a lot of ways, I was kind of scared because I knew a lot of who I was was dependent upon my surroundings. What would I do? Who would I become? What would I choose? And on the one hand, I'd be like, like a teenager, I know what I'm doing. Let me do it. On the other hand, I was like, oh, I'm scared. of What will I become? Well, these transitions are moments where really we find out not only who we are, but we really get to decide what's valuable to us, who is important to us, who we will follow. And I found out right in the beginning that um, it was very hard to be a Christian at the school that I was at. Uh, there were so many people who were very, uh, very hostile to Christianity. The professors were horrible. Uh, you could not speak up for Christ in any way, shape, or form without just getting slammed on by people who are ten times smarter than you. Um, but it wasn't the intellectual doubt that, that was the thing that really kind of, uh, kind of messed me up and threw me off course. It was the fact that I really envied and wanted to live the life of the people around me. The choices that they were making seemed so palatable. They were having so much fun. They were enjoying life. And here I was trying to be, do this Christian thing and to follow God in a place where I felt like there is no credit. In fact, it is embarrassing to say that I was a Christian. And uh, honestly, um, on, the day, on, the, on the days uh, following, I kind of pushed this unfollow button. Okay, Sorry, the text is a little off. I, in my heart, I never, I never said to anybody, I'm not a Christian, but I stopped telling people I was. I stopped showing that I was. I followed in the very footsteps of the people that I hung out with. Uh, eventually, I joined fraternity, and I, I made all kinds of mistakes. And by the time I was done, at the end of my four years of college, I was so regretful. I could have spent those four years really following Christ, but when I was done, I was a mess. I was such a mess. And I realized that it's very possible to have this life in Christ where I experienced God. I loved God. I knew he loved me, but... <laughs> during a very critical transition, I tried to see what it's like to follow the pathways of other people and other ways of life. And I lost myself. It was only by sheer grace that actually uh, I was brought back into God's presence. But we've been talking about this whole series, what it means to follow Jesus, that it's not about whether you're a Christian or you had this experience of receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's not the biggest part of what it means to be in a life with Christ. 
Jesus always used the language of follow me, become my disciple, learn how I do it, let me come to you and live with you and you become like me. This is the clearest expression of what the Christian life looks like, a life of following. But as I just shared, it's possible to start off really well, whether it was given to you or you experience God in a very profound way, but then to find that there comes a moment of just incredible challenge. You're so tempted to say, at this point in my life, it's not quite worth it. It's kind of embarrassing. It's tough to hold on to. I'm just going to either put it on the shelf or I'm going to actually even just unfollow. The disciples themselves had this very challenge and these very experiences. No one who sits on a course of following Jesus will actually not encounter the challenge of, do I push that button? Do I step back from giving my all? Do I keep following or do I take a different course? And as we see in this passage today, Jesus sometimes not only allows it, he provokes it. Because there's something about following Christ that's so valuable that he will not let us stay in the ambiguity of, yeah, I'm following, but I'm not following. He's going to point out situations and he bring maybe even seasons of transition where we have to decide, will we really follow Christ? Um, and that's where we are today. What do we do when we're feeling these experiences of temptation, of trouble, and of, of, of confusion? How do we follow him when we're tempted to push that unfollow button? That's the last sermon in this series. Um, we're done as of today, and our, our grace group's following this. Um, we're going to step into uh, a new series this coming week, uh, this coming Sunday, called The Jesse Tree. And it's just, a, it's just a, a way to follow through the Old Testament and all the expectations that the Old Testament had about the coming of Christ. And that's going to help us as a community prepare for Christmas. And so um, we'll give you more announcements in just a bit. But I want to stay with this passage. I want to stay with this message uh, as we finish out our fall grace group season. Well, in the book of John, chapter 6, we catch this right in the middle of actually a really important turning point in Jesus' ministry. I'm going to back up a bit before in the book of John. If you have your book, you're more than welcome to uh, go back with me. But the book of John, um, chapter 6, kind of starts off with Jesus doing this miracle. And, you know, if, you're, if you grew up at church, Jesus always does miracles. After a while, just like, another miracle? Okay, Jesus did another miracle, of course. Another blind person, another lame person, another deaf person, mute person. Okay, it actually kind of loses its significance. But to the original hearers, the original experiencers, this was just off the hook. This was crazy. This, was the, this is the stuff that they've been waiting for, not only for the 400 years when God was silent. This is what they were waiting for the whole time, since Moses and before Moses. And so Jesus does this miracle, and for us it's like, oh, that's nice. Um, but he feeds thousands of people in the multitude, miraculously, okay? He makes bread, and he has some fish, but it's the bread that's important. He gives bread from out of nowhere, and all the people are cared for. They are shepherded. They're pro- provided for out in the wilderness. And for us, we're like, oh, that's nice. You know, they were hungry. They got a nice, easy meal, fast food, uh, miracle style. But for them, it spoke to them of what happened in the Old Testament. They remembered the stories that when God was on the move with Moses, saving them and bringing them to himself, 
They were in the desert. They had no food. million people, and God fed them miraculously every single day with this thing called manna. Okay? It's like a ground-up seed, and when they ate it, it was kind of hearty, but after 40 years, you can't stand this stuff. But that was their story that God showed up to be their pr- provider, their shepherd, by feeding them in the wilderness. And when they were thinking about how God was going to show up to save them, in their life, in their present circumstances, they remembered, oh, he's going to, this is what Moses did, and God's going to do something like that. So when Jesus feeds a multitude in the wilderness, miraculously, they're like, this is it! This is it! This is, we're, we're in good shape now. Unfortunately, rather than looking to let Jesus do what he wants to do and say what he wants to say and be who he wants to be, they assumed that Jesus was going to be the kind of king, the kind of savior that they wanted. They wanted something out of him. They didn't pay attention to actually what he was doing or what he was saying. This happens all the time. When you're following somebody, I do that a lot. My wife tells me something, and I go, uh-huh, uh-huh, and I ask her, what did you say? <laughs> happens all the time. Sometimes we're distracted, but they're hearing him, but they don't get him. In the story, Jesus starts talking about, you know, uh, he actually walks on water, and people are like, oh, another miracle. And then they find out, they're like, do it again, do it again. Do something cool. Do something crazy. We want to be in, in, you know, in your glow. And he looks at them, and he sees their hearts and realizes they're not really wanting to follow. They want just the miracles. And so he says, you know, you're after me because of the signs I'm doing, but you don't really understand. Okay? Yes, your ancestors ate Manna in the desert, miraculously, but they perished. They died. And he says something interesting. I am the bread of life, okay, sent from heaven. If you eat of me, then you won't die, but you'll have eternal life. And they're like, what is he doing? What is he saying? Okay, let's catch up here. Verse, verse uh, 653, Jesus said to them, very truly, and that's two words, amen, amen, that means pay attention. This is important. Okay? Don't just, uh-huh, uh-huh. Amen, amen. Very truly, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, which is Jesus, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at that last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. That is disgusting. Can you imagine, okay, um, if I, this is one of the passages when I was a kid that I just made, made no sense to me, and I tried to talk to my mom. My mom was the one who helped me. She was like my Bible teacher. She was the one who said, one day we're going to marry Jesus. I'm like, I don't want to marry Jesus. The bride of Christ will marry Jesus. And she always used to say, you're going to marry Jesus. I don't want to marry Jesus, okay? That was one of the tough passages. This was the other one. I got to eat his, you know, I got to, this is cannibalism and vampirism, right? You got to drink his blood. I was going to put up all kinds of pictures of a cannibal and a a vampire. I was like, that's too gross. That's a little demonic. But like, what is Jesus saying here? Okay, pay attention. We lose it all the time. We over-spiritualize it. They did not. Okay, he was getting at a point, uh, and there's a metaphor here, and there's a truth here, but we just kind of glaze over it. We just think this is talking about communion when actually it is and it's not. There's a depth there that sometimes we miss. He's saying, you've got to eat of my flesh. Okay, I've never, I like chicken. I like beef. I don't like human, right? Um, I, 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 like, I like grape juice. I do not like blood. I, 
how, how are we supposed to understand this? And they obviously took it extremely literally too, okay? Um, but if you go back, back to what he was trying to say, something about Jesus, about who he is, that when it's ingested and taken in by choice, it does something, okay? It does something to us. Because Jesus himself is the very food that gives life, that gives eternal life, okay? Earlier on in that passage in John 6, he says, very truly I tell you, amen, amen, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, because you ate the loaves and had your fill. They were after what God was going to give them. All the good things, okay? Protection, provision, you name it, okay? But he says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Just so that you don't get confused, he expl- they ask, ask him, what does it mean to work for this? He says, you just have to believe in the Son of Man. It's a heart relational response. It's putting your effort into following Jesus. That's what he's saying. Don't work in a way that all your other supp- needs are supplied. Work for the better food. Okay? He's saying, I am the better food. It is not Moses who is it not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Okay, and he's saying that's him. For the bread of God, uh, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Okay, and so they didn't understand what he's saying. What do you mean? What bread from heaven and it gives life? We want this bread. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So you see what I'm saying? He's saying he's making a connection here. It's not this perishable food that sustains you for this life. He's saying, God sent me like manna, but I am the bread of not just this life, but eternal life. And you have to eat it in faith. What does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood? Well, he kind of explains it here. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, stays in me, and I stay and am with them. This language of in and with, that's uniting language. So this one scholar named F.F. Bruce put it this way, to believe in Christ is not only to give credence to what he says. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're the bread of life. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're the Lord and Savior. If I just put my trust in you and, and you cleanse me of my sins, I go to heaven. It's far more than that. It's great, but that's not what it means to eat his flesh and drink his blood. To believe in Christ is to be united to him in faith, by faith. To participate in his life. That somehow you get to be like Jesus, do the things that Jesus does, live life with Jesus, and Jesus comes alive in you. It's a very strange thing that somehow something that is brought from the outside becomes inside, and that inside becomes, makes its home in you, and you begin to exhibit all the stuff that came from the outside. Okay? For example, if you ever are sick and get a blood transfusion, it's a very gross idea. I don't know if you've ever got a blood transfusion. Okay? It's kind of a gross idea. Somebody else's blood. You don't know where that blood's been, right? Somebody else's blood, no matter what, it could be diseases, it could be healthy stuff or a lot of cholesterol, is stuffed inside you. But if you are in trouble 
and you need a blood transfusion, this is life. The very things that was in that person is now inside you, coursing through your veins, giving you life. Another example of this would be like stem cells, uh, like a bone marrow transplant. If you've got leukemia, your body can't make the, the, the proper uh, cells that you need, white blood cells, for your uh, immune response. So what do we do? We ask somebody who actually has a, a similar type to you, and they have to get their marrow of their bones sucked out. It's a very painful experience. And then that has to get shoved into the marrow of your bone, and the crazy thing is, it starts to pump out white blood cells that actually bear the DNA of that other person. But then that is a life-saving experience. It's kind of like that. Something that's been brought into you that you've accepted. And what do you do when you eat? You, you chew. I don't usually chew much. I inhale. You, know? you chew, and then your body begins to break it down. And then your body begins to absorb. And it gets put into the building blocks, your proteins and your muscles and your nerves and uh, the fat and other areas of your life, of your body. And now that's become part of you. And now you exhibit that. So, for example, my wife, she loves garlic, you know. <laughs> so she, she would take that fermented garlic and she would just eat it. And, and then next morning I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know. Something that she ate is just, she's reeking of, right? That's the expression that she, we get to participate in the very heart and the life of Christ. Something of Jesus starts to come out in us, and that's what, the, what it means to be a Christian, to have the Holy Spirit alive and active. That used to, We used to be like this, but now we are authentically different because something inside us from Christ is actually showing up. It's manifesting. That's what it means to be a Christian. When you give your heart to Christ, when you trust him and say, I trust you, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to stay with you, that process leads you more and more and more. Before you know it, Jesus is coming out. A very specific version of Jesus that looks like you, smells like you, talks like you, but it's Jesus that has been inserted and is coming out. This is a quite an invasive, kind of a difficult thing to think about. We like to keep things on the outside, but you can't do that if you're eating something. Somebody gives you food, and if you don't trust them, you're not going to eat it. But if it's something that actually somebody you trust and you eat it, maybe it's even a medicine that will have effects, it's an act of amazing faith to do so. Not a one-time thing. It's actually walking with, trusting, following Jesus that changes us, that changes us. And that's what he was trying to get at. It's not enough to go after him for what he is not only going to give, but just do this following thing when it's convenient, like I was doing. There are going to be times when, in fact, this is like, like right here, Jesus provokes a challenge, and he makes it a bit difficult, onerous to follow him, embarrassing, okay, where well, you have to really trust him. Okay? Uh, he goes on, basically says that, I am the bread from heaven. Your ancestors didn't do this right, the people in the wilderness. They screwed it up. They thought, oh, God's going to take care of us, but they never gave God their hearts. Okay? They never really followed him. And interestingly enough, the very people who are listening to this, his disciples, those who have been following him from place to place because they thought he was the Messiah, when they heard this about eating flesh, drinking blood, they, they had a hard time with it. It says, 
on hearing it, many of his disciples, not just a few, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? Kind of like saying, Jesus, this is impossible for us to follow. And it was. They were brought up being taught, you can't eat certain foods, pork, shrimp, so on and so forth, right? You can't eat food, and you can't drink blood. That's why Jews love brisket. Okay, they make the best brisket in the world because uh, they can't eat some other foods. Brisket has to be nice and dried, and, and the blood has to be drained. You can't have blood in it. There was symbolic reason for it. Think about it. If you grew up your whole life, and Jesus knows this, and you can't eat certain foods, and you can't drink blood, you can't do that, guess what? He chose this metaphor to ferret out who's willing to give him space to listen to him and follow him, and who can find an easy excuse when it's embarrassing or inconvenient, confusing or troubling to say, that's it. It's almost like they're saying, you want us to leave? This is a hard teaching, okay? Um, who can accept it? That word hard is quite interesting. If you look at the uh, Old Testament and the New, that word, that original word actually shows up as describing the hearts of the people in the Old Testament, the people of God in the wilderness who refused to trust God, who refused to follow him. So in the book of Hebrews, repeatedly he'll say, today if you hear his voice, do not harden. That's the word hard that is describing a hard teaching. Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. In the Old Testament, the people of God were tested too. Will you follow because it's easy? You're going to the promised land? Or will you really trust me and follow after me? They actually hit the unfollow button repeatedly. It's the same word that's translated stiff-necked. Stephen talking to a people uh, right after Jesus died, and he, he actually, is, right after this, he gets stoned. But he says, uh, telling the Jews, you stiff-necked people, that's the word hard, by the way, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. That word, oddly enough, describes a heart that refuses to respond to and to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit and the person of Christ. Right? So that word is kind of an interesting word. It's put in there to describe that's what's going on. These followers, these disciples, they, their hearts were hard, and they found this teaching too hard. Like a, it's kind of funny. That word is used to describe, describe a stiff wind in the book of James. Like opposition. You know, like you giving us opposition when actually what's happening is they are giving God opposition. They're resisting him. John says Jesus was aware of his disciples grumbling about this. Okay, grumbling is a technical word. Deep complaint, unbelief, anger. Basically saying, that's it. And Jesus says to them, does this offend you? Okay. That's a funny thing to say, right? Because he knows that it did, right? Okay, eat, my uh, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Does this offend you? <laughs> of course it did. Uh, we New Yorkers know about what it means to be offended. Right? We get offended. Uh, I, I find, though, as, 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 uh, as I travel the country, uh, New, York, uh, New Yorkers aren't offended as badly as Northwesterners. Okay? In Seattle, if you, um, okay, don't ever do this. If you take, uh, you can do this if you want, but take an uh, aluminum can and inside of everybody, 
throw in the garbage without recycling, you'll have a whole crop of eco-Nazis really offended, right? Um, uh, that, but New Yorkers, we're not easily offended. But just think about it. Uh, he knows. And in fact, he chose to offend them. He chose to bring them into a place of doubt, even. Is this really the Messiah? Is he really going to help us? Why would he say things like this? Eat his flesh, drink his blood. He caused them to wrestle with doubt. See? I want you to think about it. Last time, when was the last time you really doubted whether God was real, whether he really loved you, whether the promises were very true, that you following him would result in what he said? Abundant life in this life and the next. Okay? If you haven't doubted, guess what? Either you're a liar or your faith is not fully developed. Because anybody who starts following Jesus gets hit with this experience of doubt. We see it even with Doubting Thomas, right? That's his name. You know, forever his name is Doubting Thomas. Hi, I'm Thomas. No, you mean Doubting Thomas? Yeah, Doubting Thomas. Uh, Interestingly enough, what happens with Doubting Thomas is he wasn't sure. But when, because he had a, a slight opening in his heart, when Jesus showed up, he was so convinced he became one of the most profound missionaries in the world. We go to a church in India that has its roots in a church that was founded by Doubting Thomas, right? It is such a healthy thing to work through, to think through, to pray through the very places where you're not sure if God is up to what he says. Some of us is intellectual. Some of us are thinkers. And uh, I grew up in a church where if you thought too much, you were kind of poo-pooed. Faith has nothing to do with knowledge, as I was told. But, you know, I, I have to understand. And nobody was explaining it to me. And that's what was really hard when I got to college because they explained it in a different kind of way. I had to really wrestle whether creation is true versus evolutionary. I had to wrestle with whether it's possible to abridge the natural laws, to have miracles. I had to wrestle with this stuff. But you know what? I'm so thankful that I had, and I still have, those times. Because every time I take a genuine doubt that I'm not so sure about, and I invite Jesus into it, I grow in faith. These days, I'm not so intellectually frustrated. I've worked out most of what I need to work out. I still have some, but these days, my doubt really revolves around, can I trust you, God? Is it worth following you? That's the tough one. Is it really worth it? I ask myself that way too often. And I can call it what it is. I'm hesitating. I'm not sure. Is it worth it? I don't know if you're like me. Well, there is a difference between doubt, where you're hesitating and you're not sure, and that's leaving room for God to show up and reveal to you and bring you deeper, and a closed, hard heart. That's called unbelief. So faith is what Jesus is after. Trust. Obedience, response. Faith says, God can, God will. Doubt says, maybe God can, maybe God will. Unbelief says, God can't, God won't. God cannot work with unbelief, but he can work with doubt. Disciples, I think uh, the many who left and unfollowed they were dealing with unbelief. 
They're stuck in saying, no, God, you can't. This is not you. I reject. Um, but beautifully so, the 12, actually, they work with faith, and they work with maybe, maybe a little doubt, too, but they work with faith. So I'm going to fast forward a little quick, and you see that after this whole exchange where Jesus says stuff like, I have to eat my flesh, drink my blood, does this offend you? Right? From this time, many of his disciples, they turned back, and they no longer followed him. Okay. Now, if you're Jesus, and you like a following, you like all of the, the likes on your, on your social media page, you like all the followers on your Twitter page, guess what? You don't want to give them up. You want to do everything you can a normal person, by the way, to have this large following. But Jesus actually, sorry, he provokes this and he tests the, his disciples. And a lot of them, they leave. So he turns to the 12 and say, are you going to unfollow me too? And um, the answer that Peter gives in, in representing the 12, it's a, it's a good answer. It helps us to sort through what do we do when we're facing some of these experiences, Simon Peter answered Jesus when he says, Are you gonna follow you gonna you're gonna follow away too? You're gonna unfollow me too? Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? And it sounds kind of like, We're stuck with you, Jesus. You know, all my options suck. You're the, you're, you're, you know, it sounds kind of bad, doesn't it? It sounds like you know, we can't leave you now. We are, you know. But actually, if you think about it, okay, it, it helps us to understand. What is going through his mind? He's thinking, what are the options do I have? Do I have that rabbi? Do I go back to the fisherman? Do I have, do, can I do this? Can I live this? Because something is happening in his heart and mind. He realizes there's a choice. Either he follows Jesus or he follows something or someone else. This is Andy Stanley when he says, and he points this out. If you are not following Jesus, if you're not staying on the path of following Jesus, it means you are following someone or something else. Okay? Sometimes we think it's either Jesus or I get to do my own thing. But doing our own thing actually leads us down a course where we get trapped into following another set of footprints. We're not that creative. We are not that, uh, like, smart and figuring out what to do with our lives. We're going to follow someone or something else. So when Peter says, I understand that either I trust you or I'm putting my life, my eternal life, in someone else's shoes. And he makes that choice, even when it's tough. Even when all, he sees all of his disciples that he worked hard along with Jesus to, 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 to grow when they're leaving. He actually says this. And sometimes that's what it comes down to. You have to have a cold, have a cold heart of awareness, a hold awareness of saying, it's either Jesus or someone else. He says, you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the only Holy One of God. Something about his experiences and what Jesus has said and what is, what is proven to be true up to that point in time was deeply convincing. That even though they couldn't make sense of this eating flesh and drinking blood stuff, even though everybody else is leaving, this gave them this 
conviction to be able to stay with Jesus. I think that's what happens to us as we walk with Christ. He shows up in such a way that in our times of confusion and temptation, when we stay with him in trust, even though we're doubting a bit, he gives us the grace to realize not only is it there's no other options, but he is the one who has life and eternal life. So I'm going to share a story of just, you know, I came back to Christ after, after college, and I thought, you know, now life should be good because I had messed up so much, and I don't deserve anything good, but, you know, God has been so good in my life. I, I, I didn't expect this to, to happen to my family, but my mom got really sick. And um, I'm a mama's boy, and so it, it, hit, it hit me pretty hard that my mom was, was pretty sick. Um, we, she, she was working 16 hours a day. She really shouldn't have been. And she just didn't have, we didn't have health insurance. We didn't know any doctors. And I felt really helpless. And I was thinking about my friends who were at the school that I was at. I mean, I would, I would look at their parents. Either their parents were doctors or their parents were stinking rich or they had a lot of pull. And they, had, they, they, could, they could have, you know, if, if any of their family members were sick, they would have gotten treated really well. Here I was, uh, you know, thinking about my mom. We have no health insurance, uh, no access to doctors, really, um, and just really stressed out. I was getting really bitter. It's kind of like, God, I came back to you, right? Why would you, you know, why would you let somebody else's mom be sick who can get access to doctors and let my mom get sick? And in the midst of this, I was driving home from work one day, and just I was having it all out. I just... I was pouring out to God. I was saying, you know, you know, you choose to do this right after I come back to you. And on top of that, you know, you know that we don't have money. We don't have health insurance. We don't have contacts or suction uh, that way. We have nothing. That's what I was saying to God. You can pray like this, by the way. Uh, and this is, this is what I was praying to God. And in the moment of both half self-pity, half authenticity before God, God, we have nothing but you. Yeah. Kind of like, I was thinking about my mom. All she did was give her whole life to church. She just prayed. You know, she, she didn't have an education. She didn't have any, we have nothing but you. And then I heard this quiet in my soul. And I heard God do something that I haven't heard much of, but I heard him giggle. I heard him laugh. And uh, I was like, did I hear that right? God, why would you be laughing? Why would you be laughing? And it made me kind of half angry even more so. It's like, I'm going through this whole pity party and you're laughing? And then it began to wonder, I began to wonder in my heart and mind, why would God laugh? And then it dawned upon me because I was hearing my own voice. God, all we have is you. Then I went through that logically. Wait a minute. If all we have is God, the creator of the universe, the one who loved us so much that he gave his only son, the one who moves in power, who's so trustworthy, who's been faithful, who was so gracious that he took me back after I totally lost my way and unfollowed him. And all of a sudden, this deep peace just came upon my heart. I felt such a closeness to God um, and him saying, I got this. My mom, she did uh, go through surgery and she, she overcame this. But every time a family member gets sick, I remember this. God challenged me. Would I trust me? Would I trust him? Would I walk with him? Or would I hit the unfollow button? 
And even in a moment of doubt, he allowed me to process. And I think of it now, that I know my God is faithful. It was that experience and many others in this journey of following him that where I was challenged. I know what it's like to unfollow, but I also know what it's like to follow. And I can say, as the disciples will say, as the history of all those in Christ will say, as your brothers and sisters in Christ will say, you will come up to a moment when it's so tempting to unfollow. But if you stay in it, not only will you not regret it, you'll be brought deeper into the life of Christ. More of Jesus will come out in and through you. Don't be short-sighted. Don't think about, as a college student, missing out on all the fun you're going to get in college. As a, somebody who's coming out of college and going to work and finding that it's embarrassing to be a Christian and then, and then you know, hiding it or even saying, I've got to work my butt off to get my place. Or, or you get married and there's so much fun stuff to do, so much time. Work and married life is so busy, you don't have time for Christ. Or you have kids. Or there's transitions upon transitions where it's so easy to hit that button. But if you will stay, you will walk with him. You get to experience the depths of who he is. You will be able to be brought into a place where you are united with him by faith. And that's what he wants to do. I'll have you bow your heads with me as we pray.